Welcome to the Illuminations Media Network. And welcome back to the Illuminations Media Network. This is Tamara Westwood, your host, and I'm glad that you've joined us again for another fascinating show. One of my favorite topics is all about health, and today that's what we're going to be speaking about. So I don't know about you, but I know I want to live a very long time. I don't want to be a burden on anyone. I want to be healthy. I want to be able to take care of myself. And I think that that would be true for most people. And I'm not too excited about that whole singularity idea about merging with machines. But I think our guest tonight may have the answer. The answer that is practical for everyone. It's all about health and longevity. Our guest is Ira Pastor. He is the CEO of BioQuark. And he's with us tonight to talk about the advancements that can lead to our rejuvenation and our health. This is what everybody wants, because if you don't have good health, you don't have much at all. Is that right, Ira? That, that is certainly the case. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Tamara. Oh, I'm so glad that you joined us tonight. And, you know, we're going to go and take a little break. And then after we're done with our break, we're going to be right back with this fantastic informational show. See you on the other Remember side. Humpty Dumpty and his great fall? Is it possible that we all have a lot in common with him? Could he have removed his propensity to go splat? Is there anything we can do to remove our own fault lines? Stephen Lewis, the developer of a 24-7 self-healing technology, the AIM program of energetic balancing, believes that in the absence of fault lines, Humpty would have just gotten banged up, a little dirty, requiring a little detailing rather than be put back together. Instead, he broke where he was programmed to age. But unlike Humpty, we can heal our fault lines, remove our potentials for disease instead of counting on others to diagnose or treat our symptoms. How? Visit aimprogram.com. Get Stephen's book, Sanctuary, The Path to Consciousness, and join the thousands worldwide who are changing their programming and becoming the first in the history of their family with no family history. All right, and we're back with Ira Pasture of BioQuark. Now, Ira, the first question that I have to ask is that name. Where did that name come about? Well, you know, with BioQuark, uh, we were looking for something that sort of merged together uh, biology, uh, but at the same time, the sort of the mysterious world of of physics and all the other, you know, interesting sort of cosmological forces that impact us on a daily basis, but which we don't think too much about because we don't feel them or see them or, <laughs> or touch them. So we wanted to merge together those two worlds. And as, you know, quarks are, you know, one of the smallest subatomic particles that make up everything in the universe, uh, plus the fact that it's a pretty cool name, <laughs> we decided to bring the two together, and uh, there we go. Basically, a uh, company focused on biology that can uh, hopefully really do some mysterious and magical things uh, in the future with, uh, with human health. 
Well, that is super exciting. And and I know our listeners want to learn more about it. So, Ira, how did you get involved in this process of of taking biology and science and, and supporting human life? Well, it was really um, – it started at a, at a rather early age. Um, I was always – uh, somebody that was very intrigued and impressed by the wonders of the natural world um, in pharmacy school. You know, I'm a, I'm a pharmacist by undergraduate training, and uh, they still, when I went to school, gave a few semesters of uh, medical botany. Uh, we had to learn all about plants and natural products. Uh, most people are, you know, really aren't aware that even in 2018 today, uh, upwards of 85% of all the you know, pharmaceutical products that we take still have their origin from nature, either in plants or fungi or bacteria. Um, and so, you know, I was immersed in that and sort of this amazing basket of biologic possibilities that were out there in the natural world that created the first sort of century of the pharmaceutical industry. But then we wanted to go a little further because the really smart people were telling us, you know, we've barely scratched the surface. Uh, and when you look and out there and you realize that, you know, we occupy this planet with many species, I would say most of them, which from a health and wellness perspective are just so much further advanced than we are as human beings, although we sort of see ourselves at the top of this food chain. But when you look at sort of capabilities like complex regeneration of limbs and organs and eyeballs and parts of the brain that are, you know, is, is normal activity in, say, the amphibian kingdom, or whether you look at uh, the ability of many species uh, like starfish and certain worms to uh, basically get cancer and just, you know, shrug it off as if it was the common cold, or, you know, whether it's more of these outlier organisms, you know, we, there's, there's plenty of organisms on this planet that do not age. Uh, there's some that age in reverse, uh, and there's even a few that technically even die and are reborn. Um, when it comes to all this, you know, humans <laughs> sort, of, we sort of missed the boat. And what we wanted to do is really go back to nature uh, and reconnect with some of this, these ideas and put a little science behind it and figure out, you know, why are the, all these species so robust and resilient? Um, some of them can hang around for 200, 300, 500 years in certain cases in a long-term healthy state. Uh, and we get, you know, our 75 years or so, and then you know, we're gone. Uh, so uh, putting all that together was really the, the basis for sort of what we wanted to do this time around with uh, the company and, and the initiatives as they, as they started off. Wow, well, Ira, that, that is super exciting. I mean, I would ab- absolutely love that, to be like a newt or a salamander, that, you know, if, if one of my limbs you know, was chopped off, somehow it would just grow back, <laughs> you know, you know, and that, that makes me think about that whole phantom limb um, phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know, we, we think about that, it just, just makes me think, um, you know, about consciousness, you know, that consciousness is in uh, the cell, that somehow there's a, there's a memory or an awareness that there is supposed to be uh, a limb there. 
You yeah, know, that so. is that point is you know we usually talk about that's that's a very complex point, but I love the fact that you brought it up early. Um, you know, we think in today's sort of day and age that you know with all this focus on uh, in, in sort of the pharmaceutical industry on on things like genes. Uh, you know, we did the Human Genome Project 20 years ago and sort of we said, oh, we know the code of life. But, you know, the one thing we realized is that, you know, genes by themselves don't do anything. They're just little bits of information that code for, you know, amino acids. Um, there is nothing in the genome that says, you know, an arm <laughs> looks like this and is a certain length and size and has five fingers, and uh, that's a bigger function. And so when it comes to some of these larger scale concepts of size and shape and patterning, uh, what the scientific field is beginning to realize is, is there's stuff above the biology. Uh, and whether that is uh, bioelectric fields or bioelectric magnetic resonance or the forces that feed through our bodies in terms of light and sound and other dynamics, there's a lot more that goes on in creating who we are than just the genes. The genes are at a very low level. Right. And so you bring up Sam Limpain. I mean, that's an excellent example of, hey, yeah, there is, there is no arm there, there's no leg there, but hence there is the feeling, the sensation that is registering, um, whether that be at the DNA level, the cell level, uh, you know, up through the central nervous system, uh, that there's something there, that there is a patterning signal that says, you know, something's missing here, but is missing the point that there shouldn't be seen and tingling, right. Um And so, yeah, that is this one beautiful example, we think, of one of sort of the, the mysteries, but at the same time um, opens up the possibilities to exploring, as I said, this higher level dynamic of where we find things like form, structure, size, and ultimately mind, uh, consciousness, other, other uh, intangibles, let's say. Right. You know, the whole, the whole idea of, of intentionality, you know, mm -hmm. that the arm is there because it has a function. You know, there's a, there's a purpose for that arm. And so, exactly. you know, the, the newt <laughs> has decided, I need another leg because I, I got to get around. And so, exactly. you know, that, that whole consciousness tip is, is really key. But, you know, we could, we could go way off into the stratosphere on that. I'm more interested in, in what it is that you're doing um, with your company right now. You know, sure. from some of the research that I've done on you, you're actually applying and partnering you know, with cosmetics, and uh, you're also looking into the pharmaceutical. Please tell mm -hmm. us a bit about it and how it would work. Sure, sure. So um, we designed the company when we set things up. Um, initially, when we started, we were thinking more along the stem cell uh, direction, but when we got a little into the work we were doing after the first couple of years, we realized that the real excitement wasn't exactly the cells uh, as much as it was the signals that tell the mm. cells what to become. Uh, basically, the, the signals that say, you know, if there's a new stem cell and it has to form a heart tissue, if you're part of the heart, uh, it does that in a certain area in the middle of your chest that forms musculature and vasculature, and it doesn't put a, you know, 
a brain where your heart should be. Um, and this was a whole area of so-called sort of morphogenetic biology that we wanted to get involved in, which we felt no one was really playing in. And so we formed the company as a biologic company. So in essence, studying nature, studying what happens in the newts, as an example. What are the proteins, the peptides, the microRNAs, all of the biofactors that basically come alive um, when that limb is chopped off? And what the steps are that the newt goes through uh, in terms of reprogramming the cells in the, in the stump, in terms of getting rid of the dead tissue, uh, in terms of sort of the immune response that goes into helping configure the new limb. All of those dynamics are intrinsically important to how we get to uh, a new limb from nothing at all or a new part of the heart or a new segment of the brain. Uh, and so we have focused more on the biologic path, developing these proteins, peptides, and other biofactors to basically mimic what we see in nature. We didn't want to go the route of, say, genetic engineering. We felt that if we kept the technology along the lines of something that's been around for a while, it would be a lot more easy to develop and at the same time more easily regulated. And when you look at some of, say, these gene therapies and gene editing technologies that are coming down the path, they're just so expensive and, you know, they're not going to be able to be afforded by the majority of the population. So we wanted to keep it simple. We wanted to base it 21st century thinking with 20th century technology. Uh, and that is, in essence, what we're doing. So we are, number one, we are a drug development company in the sense that we will be developing biologics for different regenerative issues. So we'll focus on Alzheimer's disease, spinal cord injury. Uh, we also have an interest in cancer and cancer reversion. At the same time, as you mentioned, because the dynamic of starting over again, whether that's with a new part of the heart, a new part of the brain, a new spinal cord, has to do, in essence, with turning back time in those tissues and beginning the development process over again. Because we are, in essence, making cells youthful and younger in that process, there's clearly a wide spectrum of possible um, sort of end aging longevity interest as well. So that's why we are, as you say, getting involved in the cosmetic space with partners. Um, we are also very involved in this blossoming area of uh, expanded access. And the fact that, you know, yes, we're a U.S. company, and yes, we are focused on the U.S. market, but at the same time, there's so many different dynamics in different countries around the world right now, from things like uh, conditional approval in phase two in Japan, to uh, you know, China setting up uh, uh, special zones for uh, expanded access to cancer patients. So there's quite a lot going on beyond the U.S., and we have to be involved in that because as important as the U.S. market is to us, uh, representing you know, half the world's you know, health care expenditures, we still have to be elsewhere because the really smart people will tell you that um, the rest of the world is coming online fast. And so yes. uh, these are, in essence, the three pillars of the company, a short, a medium, and a longer-term drug approach. But we think it's, uh, it makes sense uh, in comparison to you know, sort of the traditional biotech model of, you know, trying to raise a billion dollars and, and developing a new drug in, in 20 years. Mm -hmm. so, so as you mentioned earlier, um, so just to make sure that I understand and the audience gets it, um, what you're doing is looking at what is working in nature, what's already been working, you know, in other species. And what you're doing is replicating 
what those other species are doing for longevity and repair, basically. Exactly. And and the okay. proxies that we have in nature already, um, the, you know, if you go back to the 1920s, 100 years ago, uh, we first discovered insulin in pigs. Uh, that's the one example of an early uh, biologics discovery, and you know it was on the market in 1923, uh, helping diabetics out. Uh, a more recent approach to this, uh, with a multi-billion-dollar product, uh, which many people use nowadays, is Botox. I mean, there's an example of a biologic that comes from a, uh, you know, poison, a very, <laughs> a quite toxic poison, but nonetheless, is a another example of nature's, you know, transition from out there to uh, human health and whether it's a wrinkling or whether it's for migraine headaches or other uses nowadays, but these are all examples of so-called natural biologics that have made the transition to human health. Okay. And so these biologics will interact with the cells and basically turning on genes? Yeah, I mean, that's, yes. So there, there we have um, the crux of it. We are, we are looking basically... Because when you look at species like newts and salamanders, you don't find out they have diff very different genes than we do. And most of the genes are the exact same. What you find right. out is that they are much better at turning genes on and off and turning the volume up or down to a certain level. And people sometimes say, well, why don't you just take the genes from the salamander and genetically engineer somebody, a la, you know, the Spider-Man character or whatever. We say no. That's not the approach because when you look at these genes, what do you find? You basically find that genes responsible for regeneration are also growth and proliferation genes that you find in cancer cells. So it's the goal of you know, genetically engineering somebody just to turn them on constantly makes no sense. What we want to do is find out the signal to say, you know, let's turn it on for a certain amount of time now and then throughout the process of regeneration and then turn them off when we want regeneration to stop because, you know, you don't want constant regeneration. That's not Right. That's not so that's where the concern comes in with things right. like CRISPR and the, the exactly. cybernetics. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's pretty scary stuff. So it sounds like your approach is more reasonable and it, it makes more sense. You know, and yeah. it's, it's more in tune with nature, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, we our position is, look, um, we've... <laughs> Whatever someone's belief may be, you know, we've been here a couple hundred thousand years, and, but there's a lot of species out there that, you know, have been here for three plus billion. And evolution and natural selection and everything that goes on out there in the natural world is very powerful. And so as much as, you know, as the DuPonts and the Dow chemicals of the world may think that they're superior chemistry, uh, no, I, I'll put three plus billion years of evolutionary power up against those chemical factories every every day because... Uh, Most definitely. Those species, those species are still here. Uh, you know, I point outside my window is a tree. Um, its great ancestors were on this planet hundreds of millions of years ago, survives everything that kills us, uh, including ice ages and all, <laughs> all sorts of other things. <laughs> right. um, nature has found a way, and so we need to constantly listen to nature. Yes, and it always does. You know, and it, it takes us back to that intention to to survive. And and it sounds like what you're doing with BioQuirk is is you are is kind of supporting and 
and egging on that intention of like, come on, come on, let's move a little faster here <laughs> so that so that human beings can can keep up. You know, if we can, you know, that like you mentioned, that 75, 95 years that we have, I mean, that's a short lifespan to get things done. I mean, how much more could we get done, you know, if we had 150, 200 years to do it in, you know? Yeah, I mean, we, we we have this discussion all the time. In fact, I have it, I have it with my kids nowadays, and I, they, you know, they're like, you know, yeah, uh, what, Daddy, what if when you're 110, um, and but you know, still feeling 50, um, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do for your next career? And you know, I think about that. You know, I would love to go back and do a PhD and an X, Y, and Z, and who knows, maybe I'll. Be, Maybe I'll be a clinician when I'm 160. Uh, I, I have many things I would love to do and, and try again uh, on the second and third times around. So I would not get bored uh, anytime soon. So, yeah. No, this world is so fascinating, and yeah. you know, and it looks like we're 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 trying to reach out and and populate, you know, the stars. You know, we're we're moving to that, and uh, we got a lot of work to do. Well, that's you know, interestingly, um, you know, there's these these two R's that we talk about outside our. So we talk about three R's: and regeneration, repair, and rejuvenation. But there's these two other R's: robustness and resilience. Mm-hmm. Robustness, um, as it's defined in sort of the biologic world, is you know, the ability to prevent stuff from happening. Um, there is a very robust organism. Actually, we just brought some of them into the lab last week called the tardigrade. Um, these are organ. They're not very. They don't live very long, but they're the hardest thing in the in the universe to kill. You know, they can uh, they can withstand a nuclear blast, and they can be put out in the uh, the vacuum of space and go to the bottom of the ocean, and nothing harms them. And wow. So, uh, in addition to the regeneration on the social resilience side of things, we're beginning to study some of these robust organisms because within their genomes, we think there are secrets to radiation resistance, uh, to uh, the extreme uh, events that uh, one would be exposed to in various environments, whether they're in the cosmos or elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, I mean, even, even on those fronts, nature... Uh, on this planet has found a way, um, and we just have to keep listening. Yes, most definitely. You know, and what just popped into my mind is uh, Henrietta Lacks, uh, oh, yeah. her immortal cancer cells, the ones that could could jump out of the Petri dish. You know, that, <laughs> you know, that was pretty amazing. You know, those cancer cells that just just wouldn't die is is that pretty much what cancer is is a is a cell that refu- refuses to die um yes and no and this is you know this is one area that um that we have sort of taken a position and it's not just our position i you know, we, we're we're open to the fact that we're following some very smart people but you know one of the things mm-hmm. that um, sort of the last half a century of sort of the war on cancer has been totally based on the assumption that cancer is only about the cell. 
that there is the damaged mm-hmm. cell, and in the case of Henrietta Lacks, it, for, one, when it, for all intents and purposes, yes, this forgets to die, or that has, does not get the signals to stop and goes on forever. And that is, in essence, at the cellular level, um, what happens. But then the question is, why does that not always translate into good cancer therapies? And why are we, you know, 50 years into the war on cancer, why do we still lose 8 million people around the world to cancer every year? And the problem has been that there are other components to cancer. Uh, How do we know this? We know this because many things in scientific literature are not explained by the runaway cell concept. Um, If the runaway cell concept was the only concept around, you would not see things like spontaneous remission. Uh, You would not see things like asbestos-related cancer where there is no mutation involved and all of a sudden, boom, cancer forms. But more importantly, and this is very interesting because a lot of this work goes back to the regenerative field that we're in, but it has been known for decades now, actually going back to the 1940s, that if you put cancer cells in different tissue environments, as diseased as they are, they can normalize. Uh, We see this in developing embryos. We see this in regenerating limbs of organisms like salamanders and newts. You can give some of these species cancer, but they turn the cancer into normal, healthy tissue. And there's a wonderful connection here because, you know, we've been trying to kill away for... (laughs) For 60, 70 years now with chemo and radiation. And now right, flash and burn. <laughs> flash and burn, and now the smart drugs. But at the same point, we're still missing it. Um, we need to think about why no other species that deals with cancer, the resilient or resistant cancer species, don't kill cancer, they change cancer. They, they change it. it. into normal tissue. And well, that sounds like the genes to me. Yeah, exactly. It is. The, the, but, what, but the question, who controls those genes in that organism? They're not taking uh-huh. any therapy. They're getting signals from the higher order structure that say, you know what, the tumor doesn't belong here. Let's change it and get it out of the picture. Just like with that phantom limb, just like with any other patterning dynamic, there is a dynamic of what is normal, and there are the instructions out there if we can connect it back to the tumor to say, you know what, you don't belong here, let's normalize you and turn you back into healthy tissue, or we're going to make you commit suicide and, and, and kill yourself. And right. We're in we charge, do. in other yeah. words. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so that is the missing piece, in our opinion, to the cancer puzzle. The cell is important, the damage, the runaway cell, obviously, but the control mechanisms behind it and why the whole thing, you know, blasting away with chemo and killing all the healthy tissue as well, which normally keeps the tumor in mind. I mean, keep in mind, everyone listening and, and you and I, so I think, of course, in this conversation right now, we're constantly fighting cancer. We're constantly fighting little transformations that are occurring across the 50 trillion cells that we're made up of. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens quietly in the background. We don't think about it, but it keeps us cancer-free for decades throughout our life. Um, those are the control mechanisms. We have them as humans. We just need to pick them up a notch. Hmm. That is another piece, and it is uh, it is very invisible. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I think just like everything else, as human beings, we we want to harness it. We definitely want to figure it out so that we can we can use it to to make it work for everyone. 
that would be so awesome if we could bottle that. You know? Absolutely. Yes. Wow. And and so, you know, what comes up for me now is the testing phase. You know, what is the process of a new uh, pharmaceutical or a biologic or something that's new? What is the process of getting it out there so that it can actually benefit the public? Well, a traditional drug development model for something like a a traditional drug or a biologic, uh, two different areas here in the United States, but they all go through the FDA. Um, it's your typical phase one, two, three process. So after spending yeah, $100 million and, and, and working in a, in a variety of non-human models, um, rabbits and guinea pigs and dogs and rats and so forth, uh, one transitions into three phases of clinical development. Typically in phase one, you are studying uh, your biologic material for general tolerability in healthy patients. Uh, phase two, you typically go into sick patients with smaller populations. Uh, and phase three, you go into large populations of sick patients for longer periods of time. The main issue in phase three, what you're looking for is the, the chronic toxicological problems don't typically show up in the short term. And this is a major issue. This is a major issue with drug development and why you see in all these products that eventually make it to market and then 10 years into the fact, you find people that have liver damage. So the stuff you right. don't see in the long term, mm-hmm. that, that's the really, that's what, people say, why does drug development take so long? Well, that's typically what regulators are looking at. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, the model of the pharmaceutical industry for 100 years now has been, you know, give you this little white pill that you take for the next 40 years of your life. Um, now, with regard to things like what we're doing, where we're looking for short-term regeneration dynamics, and you, we don't want you to take a pill for the rest of your life. We, we want you to, you know, we want to treat you for a couple of weeks and be done with you. Um, the clinical development process is not going to be that long. Uh, we, you know, we don't have to test something for five years if we're going to treat you for a month ever. So our the development process can be differently. You were talking CRISPR before. You know, obviously that's something that you know, can genetically engineer somebody. That'll be a one-and-done type thing for millions of dollars. But so the time of drug development can vary. And that's the that's the FDA's model, and it's typically mirrored in most countries around the world. Um, one of the complaints nowadays, however, and we see that in um, not just the United States, but with the legislation and things like right to try dynamics and so forth, is the question, well, if I'm dying uh, of cancer, dying of organ failure, dying of heart disease, why do I need to wait 20 years to try something? Uh, and why can't I get into clinical trials earlier or get into expanded access more easily than is possible today? Uh, the numbers are pathetic out there. You know, less than 5% of all patients that are dying that are outside the medical care even ever look for clinical studies. It, it's, a, it's a pathetic number. And so what we were beginning to see, as I mentioned early on, is some of the rules changing in different countries, where countries like Japan uh, with conditional access, where they say, you know what, the worst of the worst patients should be able to get these products at phase two. Uh, and not have to wait long after they are going to die for the product to be on the market. And right. these are good trends to see, and we think they're important because it is not one size fits all. All of our diseases are different. We are all different biologically, uh, and we need to really think a little more creatively with regard to what makes sense. 
not everything makes sense to study for 15 years. Uh, and there are cases where we think expedited access makes legitimate ethical sense. Uh, so we like what Japan's doing. We like what China's doing recently in setting up, you know, certain uh, free zones for cancer therapy. Uh, there's just a lot going on. And so uh, the straightforward clinical model is great for little white pills that you want to take for the next 40 years. But we would, you know, pose a pretty good argument that there are other better models for therapeutics that do not fit into that mold. And um, we're championing that as well. Oh, that's excellent. But, you know, I would I would think that, you know, someone uh, deciding to jump into a clinical trial, they're they're doing it of their own free will, you know, and, and I'm sure there's documentation, there's, there's oh, yeah. legalities, and, you know, you've got a lot of papers to sign, um, but it is their choice. And so... Um, I don't think anyone should stand in an individual's way if they have decided, uh, you know, just like euthanasia. You know, if someone has decided, I, I want to, I'm ready to go, uh, no, no one should get in the way of that. Right. You know, that's, we, we, that's we just my opinion. Way. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a bit of a shame. I mean, I don't you know uh, how many, uh, you know, the audience are aware, but just a couple of weeks ago, you know, the Senate shot down <laughs> right to try legislation in the United States. So we're back to square one here. Um, and it's a bit of a shame, but um, some of the reasons that they hold out there are, are kind of weak uh, in the sense that, you know, false hope and things like this. I, I, I think that's a ludicrous argument that, you know, any drug, you know, whether it's uh, on the market or investigational, is always false hope. Why do we know? We know this because not all drugs work in everybody. So whether right. it's something highly experimental or whether it's a cholesterol-lowering drug that's been on the market for 20 years, you know, you may take it and it's going to work, and I take it, it's not going to work, I'm going to get a rash. Uh, so we know there's variability uh, in patients and in drugs that they exist today. Uh, hope. <laughs> hope is defined as the need for something, a wish for something to happen. And, you know, if we're all dying of cancer, we really want to wish that we can not just cure ourselves but have access to things that may help us. So uh, we think there's a precedent there that makes sense. Yeah. Well, one of the concerns that I have about, you know, a lot of the, we've seen a lot of drugs get recalled. I mean, I don't know what the percentages are, <laughs> but they do get pulled back um, because they never should have been unleashed. And so, you know, it just makes me wonder about, you know, is it all about money? You know, people talk about big pharma and uh, and what goes on, that some things are, are withheld, you know, that could actually benefit um, because it's not going to be advantageous for some folks' pockets, you know. Um, I guess it's, yeah. it's a business, you know, just like everything uh, else. It's definitely, you know, I'll take off my... I'll take off my current hat and I'll put on sort of my old hat because I come out of that space. Okay. All um, right. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it is a trillion-dollar business. Uh, I don't know how many people are aware of that. A trillion dollars a year goes through the pharmaceutical industry today. It's one-sixth or so, one-eighth of, uh, or, you know, 8% of, uh, of, of health care expenditure. Um, it's a big business. And they spend $200 billion every year on R&D on top of that. Um, yes, it's a business. 
However, yeah. I can say that you know, people always ask me, you know, well, you know, where, is all, where are all the cures being hidden? How come you guys? And I just point out, it's not that they had any cures. Um, they, they made high bad clinical results. That's, what, that's another thing. They don't have to disclose all the bad clinical trials. They're not hiding cures. They don't know how to make cures. And this is a really important thing to understand. Okay. The pharmaceutical industry was never set up to cure you. The pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry was set up to basically develop little white pills that you take from your local rated pharmacy for the rest of your life. So right. Consumable it, product. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, that's all it is. Curing. You know, curing is a very different thing. Curing is not taking the pill for the next 40 years because you have Alzheimer's disease. Curing is getting rid of your Alzheimer's disease and, and not taking my medicine. You take my medicine for three months and you're done for the next 20 years. Um, it's a very different thing. It's about turning back time. It's about starting over in those cells and those tissues. It's not what karma is up to do. And so I would argue that most likely what we're going to see in the coming years next 10, 20 years, is two industries develop. You're going to see your traditional pharmaceutical industry smaller with a smaller range of products. They'll still sell you your cholesterol-lowering drugs and your painkillers and all that other stuff that they want you to take. But there's going to be a separate industry that is going to be focused on interventions that do much more for you. Um, I'm not interested in (laughs) painkillers. I'm not interested in cholesterol-lowering. That's someone else's business, and they're good at that. I am okay. interested in, in repairing your dying heart um, mm-hmm. if you're going to die from heart failure. I am interested in reverting your tumor. I am interested in regenerating your spinal cord and reversing your paralysis. That's my thing. So I think they're really two separate industries. And um, this, we're at a very interesting point in time, I have to say, where you know, if we do things the right way, the traditional thinking or the way that pharma has worked, where, you know, it's always 30 years away, it is not going to be the case. Uh, and we're going to be going through some very interesting windows of what we'll call human possibility uh, in, in the short run. Well, Ira, something that, that really concerns me, and, and I'm hoping, I, I want you to please promise to, to try your best, you know, with all the power that you have, to make sure that when this does come to the light and it is in the mainstream and people are being healed and rejuvenated, that, that, it, that people who, who are in the, the so-called uh, marginalized, uh, lower economic whatever are now outpriced so that they cannot afford to partake of this. This is a, a huge concern of mine. You know, that, that a lot of times a lot of people who are um, resource poor, you know, all around the world, these are the people that uh, a lot of drugs are being tested on. However, you know, they are not able to partake of the benefits of it because they can't afford it. How do we avoid that? Well, we, we avoid that two ways. Um, and, and, and I can honestly say... Uh, we, we are, at least with our approach, we are definitely going to avoid it. As I mentioned before, when we set things up this time, we intentionally did it, as we said, 21st century thinking, but 20th century technology. Mm-hmm. Biologic tools that have been around for the last 100 years, which I point out if somebody can afford or their healthcare system can afford a vaccine, 
if they can afford insulin, if they can afford any of sort of the generic biologics that are on the market today, they will be able to afford what we're producing. We're not doing any CRISPR, no genetic engineering, no complex tissue engineering, no cost of $2 million shot. Uh, everything, whether it's in the United States or Turkey or Panama or Thailand or wherever we're talking about, will be affordable. Uh, we realized that it didn't make sense to create products that only a couple thousand people in the world could ever afford when our target base for regeneration and repair is basically 7 billion people. So, number one, that's a sort of a company perspective. Uh, number two, and we think this is a very positive trend. Um, well, in the past, obviously, in, in, in sort of fictional accounts as in, you know, Constant Gardner type stuff, but also, you know, looking back, obviously, in the history of sort of the mid-20th century and pharmaceutical testing that was yeah. done in, in, quote, elsewhere, <laughs> I, yeah. think there's, yeah, I think there's some very positive things going on today that are important to understand. Unlike then, what we see now is a true globalization of medical research and training. And so when you see things occurring like Harvard Medical School operating in the Middle East in Dubai or Newcastle University from the UK in Malaysia or dozens of the United States medical schools in China right now, you're beginning to see the integration of first world medicine in the third world and beyond and that operating clinical research all over the place is not being done in a willy-nilly fashion anymore, but has structure to it and makes sense. And so when you combine that uh, with a lot of what we also see in sort of the, when it comes to the natural world now and the indigenous property rights and revenue sharing in terms of what's happened with natural products in the 20th century and in regard to what we're seeing in the 21st century, even with our work, you know, some of our core raw materials come from sub-Saharan Africa, and we interface with those folks. And you know, we've, we're not doing any stealing of you know of uh, indigenous um, biodiversity or anything. I mean, we have to. You know, United States is you know part of the whole biodiversity uh, signatory and, and so forth. We think the structure is much better in 2018, and that will more appropriately. Um, consider the rights of everyone. And that's all I can say about that. <laughs> but, but I hope well, that puts my heart at ease. I, I, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, that. That is just such a, something that this pained my heart for, for quite a while. I feel better now. Thank you, Ira. <laughs> I, think, I think things are, 2018 is, it's, it, things are better than in you know, 1948. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Thank goodness. Well, you know, Ira, you know, time flies. We did cover a great deal of ground, and I know that we piqued a lot of interest, and uh, my listeners are very smart. They're going to do their research, and they want to know where to go. So, Ira, if you would please share your information so that people can learn more about what you're doing, um, maybe connect with any clinical trials that you might be, you know, have, have created so far, or any further research, just so that people can stay up to speed with what's happening. 
Yeah, absolutely. Come to our website at BioQuark, B-I-O-Q-U-A-R-K.com. Uh, we outline everything we're doing. We're a, uh, an extremely transparent company. Um, you can learn about our relationships, uh, both business and research-wise, um, some of the, the, the clinical uh, folks that we are partnering with overseas, and what we're doing on the consumer product front. And reach out. Um, reach out through the website. You know, contact me directly if you want. We love talking about what we do. And, and our main thing is really, even just beyond BioQuark, is, is getting everybody excited in what's coming because it is a very exciting time in, in biology, the biosciences, uh, and, and it is a very promising future uh, in the very near term. Well, I'm so glad because you know I didn't I didn't want to be merged with a cyborg or or anyone <laughs> trying <laughs> to either. try to download my spirit into onto a CD so that they could put it into a machine. I <laughs> that didn't work I, for me. I, I, I like my so carbon glad. self. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Ira, this has been this has been fantastic and so enlightening. I so appreciate you and and you're, you're so personable and you you know you're you're not a geek that's locked up in a lab somewhere. You're out here with the people, and I so appreciate that. Yeah, well, I appreciate you uh, you having me and allowing me to uh, talk a bit about our our vision. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, I thank you for listening out there to the show. Please reach out. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Reach out to Ira um, and let him know that you're interested in what he's doing. You know, everyone wants to know that everyone is interested and, and cares about all the work that they're doing. And so we appreciate you, Ira. I appreciate all you listeners. So until next time. I just want you to stay abreast of what's happening in the world. Stay hopeful and be kind to one another as you do it. Peace and blessings until next time here on the Illuminations Media Network.